Thank you for joining us on the sermon podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. have your Bibles this morning, turn with me into, book, into the book of Isaiah. Given the situation in West Tennessee, I almost, I almost thought about just changing my message on the fly, but I decided against that. I decided against that simply because I think, for me personally, I need more time to process what's going on because I, I, I hate that this is happening. And I don't want to say anything that is unfair or untrue, in, out of anger. And so I think, um, normally what I do is uh, I sit down about once every six months, and I will devote an entire day to planning out the texts of, the texts of my sermons that I'm going to preach over the next six months. Um, and I, and so I had some ideas for sermons over the next few weeks that I was going to do. And I think given recent events, that plan has entirely changed. Because I want to, I feel the need to speak into the situation with the Word of God. Especially when I don't think that other, that, uh, that other pastors at this time are willing to do that. So this morning I'm going to go ahead and, and speak on what I had originally planned. Um, and I really didn't even have this planned a few months ago. It, this, this just kind of uh, came to me a couple weeks ago. Uh, but we're going to follow the Lord's leading this morning. So if you turn to your Bibles to Isaiah 57, we're going to read verses 14 through 21. And if you would, stand when you get there. Isaiah 57, and we're going to read verses 14 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. He said, build it up, build it up. Prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. For the high and exalted one who lives forever and ever, whose name is Holy says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever and I will not always be angry for then the spirit would grow weak before me even the breath which I have made. Because of his sinful greed I was angry so I struck him. I was angry and hid, but he went on turning back to the desires of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, "Peace, peace to those to those who is peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him." But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. 
You may be seated. I haven't preached in about three weeks, and I have been sitting on this text for about two weeks, and I feel like I'm about ready to bust. On Monday, on, on Monday nights, we go to Wesley United Methodist Church. Uh, the women have a Bible study that Brittany goes to, and the men have a theological discussion group that I go to. And the women meet at 6.30, and the men meet at 7. So we usually get there on time for her, but early for me. And so I was sitting in the Sunday school class, uh, where us guys meet for our discussion group, waiting on everyone else to show up. And I thought I would take advantage of the quiet and read my Bible a little bit. And I don't know how, but I happened to just thumb open my Bible and landed right here on this text, and I couldn't stop reading it. As I saw it, I knew I had to preach on it. I tried to use my preacher brain to immediately come up with a nice outline like the one we're working with in the bulletin this morning, but I couldn't. For, for days, I couldn't get any sermon material whatsoever. I tried to study it, I tried to read commentaries on it, but I couldn't. I can't describe my experience uh, with this passage any other way than to say that I had to be alone with these words. It actually wasn't until this last Monday morning when I was at the coffee shop that I had an inkling of what to say. And on my way up to the counter to get my coffee, it just seemed like God dropped this outline into my mind, and who knows... This text may not hit you the same way it hit me, but with the Lord's help I'm going to try to communicate what I feel needs to be said about the text this morning. As we look at the message presented to us, I want us to see three things very clearly. I want us to see that there is a great chasm. Next, I want us to see that there is a great conundrum that has caused the great chasm. And then finally, I want us to see that there is a great consolation. And then if you look in the outline on the back of your bulletin, you'll see... um, that there is a great consequence as well. First, let's notice the great chasm. Look, look, look at Isaiah 57 in the beginning of verse 15. It says, For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. He says, I live in a high and holy place. I know there's more to the verse than that, but I want us to just focus on this statement for just a minute or so and focus on three aspects of God that are holy beyond our comprehension. Now in doing that, I want to remind us that the word holy uh, does not simply mean a, that the word holy doesn't simply mean morally upright. You know, when we think about the word holiness, we tend to think about it simply in terms of morality. And there is certainly a moral aspect to holiness, but someone who is holy is going to be a morally upright person, we know. But the reason we notice that kind of good behavior, the reason we notice that they might be morally upright, is because we live in a world that predominantly exhibits bad behavior, which brings us to the main thrust of what holiness is. Holiness isn't primarily moral, it's a separation. It's otherness. The reason the good behavior of holy people stands out is because it's altogether distinct and separate apart from the the bad, sinful, unholy behavior of the world. So when we, read, when we read both in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, where the angels are flying around the throne crying, Holy, 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 it's because they are declaring how separate and how other God is from everything else. 
God is creator and everything else is creation. He doesn't have a creator. He doesn't need a creator. He is the only true independent being in the universe. So when an atheist tries to play coy with you and says, well, who created God? What they don't take into account is that the being of God Himself does not necessitate a creator. Think about that statement for just a minute. God doesn't need a creator. God is the only true independent being in the universe. Now let's just say you grow everything you eat. We've got a lot of farmers here. Let's say you built your house with your own two hands. Let's say you don't have a bank account. You don't trust the banks. You just have cash and you're living off the grid. You're still depending on the rain to water your crops. You're still depending on your house to stay upright in the wake of a natural disaster. You can try to live as independently as you can and there will still always be some elements that are outside of your control. But God Himself is not like that. God doesn't have any problems or complications that are outside of His control. He is all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing, all-sufficient, and we are not. All three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all have unity, fellowship, and love for one another. God doesn't need us. However, He created us because He desires to share that love, that unity, and that fellowship that He has within Himself. He desires to share that with us. So the Father loves us. He has sent His Son to show us what love looks like. And He has sent the Holy Spirit to create that love in us. Or as Romans 5.5 5 tells us, the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given to us. And so the Father exhibits love. He is love. We read in 1 John 4, God is love. So the Father is love towards us. And then He has sent the Son to show us, to be that prime example of love. And then not only is God love, not only has He sent His Son to be love, but He has sent the Holy Spirit to us to spread that love within us. So with all of that in mind, I want us to see that the life of God is holy. Notice first of all, in verse 15, that verse 15 refers to God as the high and exalted one who lives forever and ever. So the life of God is holy. Unless Jesus comes back very soon, we will all experience death in this life. I like to tell people that, um, every, that regardless of when Jesus comes back, everybody on the face of the earth will see Jesus within at least 120 years. Because that's, that's the longest lifespan I've ever heard of of a human being. And so everyone now is going to see Jesus at some point within the next 120 years. However, so that, what, what does that mean? It means we're all going to experience death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Death is what we have earned because of our sin. Now if we know Jesus, then death can be turned into a gateway into the eternal presence of God. But we still have to face death. We still have to deal with death. But God Himself will never be held captive by death. Even, even God the Son, who was and is just as much human being as God, 
as He is God, He couldn't be held by death. He was nailed to a cross and death did take hold of Him. But according to Acts 2.24, God raised Jesus up, ending the pains of death because it was not possible. It was not possible. I'll say it again, it was not possible for Him to be held by death. It wasn't simply that He wouldn't allow it. It was not metaphysically possible. And because God raised His Son, Jesus, from the dead, Hebrews 7.25 says that He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, since He always lives to intercede for them. And so if you ever begin to feel insecure about Christ's work for you, then think about Hebrews 7.25. I know this is off the main thrust of my message for just a minute, but follow me here, I'll bring it back around. If you ever feel insecure about the work of Christ on your behalf, then look up Hebrews 7.25 and Acts 2.24 and allow the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to remind you of the work of God. You are saved completely, totally, and fully by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because He lives to make intercession on your behalf. And so the life of God is holy. The life of God is holy because He lives forever. The life of God is holy, distinct, and separate from the life of His creation because He cannot and will not be held by the captivity of death. Atheists would very much like to believe that God is dead. The Pharisees would have very much preferred Jesus to stay dead and remain in that rock-cut tomb in Jerusalem. But He didn't. He rose from the dead and His resurrection validated every word He ever spoke and every miracle He ever performed. Last Sunday night, Dr. Tom Deere was here and he spoke more eloquently than I could on the effects of the cross and resurrection. But one of the things he pointed out was that even though Jesus declared that His work on the cross was finished, the effects of His work on the cross continues to this very day. And to ignore that work, to lay aside that work, to reject that work, and to trample on that work, and never come to a place of repentance is to walk headlong into our own condemnation. And so we see that the life of God is holy. Next I want us to see that the name of God is holy. Notice that verse 15, uh, God, notice that verse 15 in Isaiah 57 refers to God as the high and exalted one who lives forever and whose name is holy. For a long time throughout Christian history, anytime someone joined the church and wanted to learn the absolute basics of Christianity, they were taught three things. They were taught the Apostles' Creed, they were taught the Ten Commandments, and they were taught the Lord's Prayer. Now the Apostles' Creed is what you should believe as a Christian. The Ten Commandments is how you should live as a Christian. The Lord's Prayer is how you should pray as a Christian. The Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer both specifically mention the holiness of God's name. The third commandment is do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain or do not misuse the name of the Lord. Or if you're reading it from the old King James, you know it says, you know, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, in vanity, in nothingness. So that's the third commandment. And then the first petition of the Lord's prayer is hallowed be thy name. Or in the CSB, which which I'm reading from, it says, may your name be honored as holy. 
All throughout the Bible there are references to the holiness of God's name and the power of God's name. And I want to look at two specific examples. One from the Old Testament and one from the New Testament. Because I want us to see how seriously the Bible takes God's name. The first example from the Old Testament is going to be found in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it, talk about it, read a little bit of it, work through it a little bit. Ezekiel 36 verses 22 and 23 This is what God speaks to the prophet Ezekiel. He says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the Lord God says. It is not for your sake that I will act house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, This is the declaration of the Lord God when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. And so God's name in this sense is like His reputation. He's saying that He's going to do something with His people so great that the people in the surrounding nations are going to know the power of His integrity. And so why is it that God's reputation has been profaned as the text says? Has God done something wrong? Has God went back on His word? Has God failed in some way? No! But His people have. And because they have, they have ruined the reputation of their God. And they have turned and followed idols and walked away from the covenant. And by doing that, they have profaned God's name. And that's what it means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We think taking God's name in vain simply means saying God's name in conjunction with foul language. And that's certainly not good to do. But that's not what taking God's name in vain means. Taking God's name in vain is what what happens when anybody who wears the label of God follower or wears the label of Christian then goes out and does something contrary to the character and the will of God. Does this sound familiar? Not taking God's name in vain has to do more with you watching the way you live more than it has to do with you simply watching your mouth. And I think the reason we turned it into simply watching your mouth and, and things like that is because that's easier to do than, watch, than, than, to, than to watch our whole lives, right? Because it's, you know, it's easier if you set certain rules for yourself and say, well, I shouldn't say that because that's taking God's name in vain. It's much easier to to reduce the third commandment down to that than it is to think about it in the context of our whole lives. Because we don't, honestly, we don't like to to keep ourselves accountable. We, including me, talking to me here, stomping on, watch this, I'm stomping on my own toes. (laughs) We don't like to keep ourselves accountable. And so not taking God's name in vain has to do more with you watching the way you live more than it has to do with simply watching your mouth. J. Ligon Duncan, uh, a PCA pastor from Mississippi, he says it like this, he said, God's name stands for His reputation. And when we use that name wrongly, either in our speech or in our lives, we bring it into disrepute. When a father sends his son into the world bearing his last name or even his first name, in many ways that father's reputation is on the line. The son's honor, the son's conduct, conduct reflects, upon, reflects on the upbringing which he received in the home and reflects on the family name. 
Just as sons who love their fathers, just as daughters who love their fathers desire to bring honor to the family name, so also Christians desire not to bring dishonor to the name of the Heavenly Father. But through our life, and through our lips, and through our love, we desire that His name would be exalted. And so God does something. God is not going to stand by and allow His name to be tarnished. And Ezekiel 36, 24-27 tells us exactly what He does. By disobeying God, by turning from Him to go their own way, the people of God put themselves in a position of enmity against God. And what does God do? Does He respond in wrath and furious anger? After all, they deserve it. They deserve it. They deserved it back in Exodus 32, 9-14 when God said that He was going to wipe out all the people. And Moses Moses said in verse 11 and 12, Lord, if you do that, then the Egyptians will just say that you brought your people out here just to kill them. And then in verse 14, it says that God relented concerning the disaster that He would bring on His people. And so even now in Ezekiel 36, God doesn't respond with wrath. He doesn't respond with anger. He doesn't respond with indignation. Instead, He responds with grace. Look at Ezekiel 36, 24-27. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So when you look at your own life, when you look at your own life and you say, man, I don't think I'm doing very well. I don't think I'm obeying God very well. I don't think I'm doing what I should. Remember Ezekiel 36, 27. Remember this, because notice what he says. He says, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. Whenever you think you're not doing very well, whenever you think you're not following God very well, remember this promise of God in Ezekiel 36, 27. And, and just pray and think, you know God, I'm saved, I'm a believer, and I have your spirit. And because I have your spirit, I want to love you and serve you more. And when you start praying that way, and when you start thinking about that, God will do something remarkable in your life. Allow the Spirit of God to cause you to follow His statutes and observe His ordinances. Don't let anyone ever tell you the lie that God was all about wrath and judgment in the Old Testament and then He didn't start showing grace until the New Testament. There was certainly wrath and judgment in the Old Testament, but it was only after God had already extended an offer of grace and repentance and those offers had been denied and trampled on many, many times. Even Jesus, speaking in Matthew 23, 27, He comments on the situation in Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those, stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. 
See, this kind of love isn't just something that shows up when Jesus comes along. This is the kind of love that God has had for His people the whole time, which is why God responds to their rebellion, their profaning of His name among the nations. This is why God responds to their idolatry with a promise to renew and restore them. And look at the lasting effect of that promise on, in Ezekiel 36, 36. It says, you know, after, after God says He's going to place His Spirit in them, This is the lasting effect that it has. Then the nations that remain around you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was demolished and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken and I will do it. So the end goal is that the entire world would be able to look at us as God's people and know that God will keep... I can't talk. The end goal is that the entire world would be able to look at us as God's people and know that God will keep His promises to us even when we don't keep our promises to Him. Why? Because His integrity is greater than our sin. His integrity is greater than our sin. Ezekiel 36 is a good Old Testament example of how seriously God takes His own name. But what about the New Testament? Well, our New Testament example comes from one verse in the Gospel of John. And this is where John is giving his purpose for writing his account of the life and teachings of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, in John chapter 20, verse 31, he writes, But these are written, his entire Gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you what? By believing you what? You may have life in His name. So when Jesus commands us to make disciples, He says we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then He tells us in John 14, 14, You may ask Me for anything in My name, and I will do it. Acts chapter 3, verse 6, there's a lame beggar at the beautiful gate outside the temple. And Peter says to him, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And what happens? He gets up and he begins to walk. Later in Acts chapter 4, Peter and some of the others, others, they get arrested because they refuse to stop preaching the name of Jesus. So why is it that the name of God causes such controversy? Why is it that Jesus' name gets people in trouble? Why does it have that much power? God's name has always had that much power. Problem is we just don't always recognize it. The problem is that we read all of these verses about praying in the name of Jesus and we think that means we need to tack the phrase in the name of Jesus on the end of our prayers or they're not going to get heard and that's not what those verses mean. We just mentioned it a while ago, but in the Old Testament, taking the name of God in vain doesn't primarily mean saying God and then a curse word right after. Taking God's name in vain is wearing this label of someone who is a member of God's covenant and then behaving in a way that is completely contrary to how God's people should behave. And so why is it that the name of Jesus is so powerful? Why is it that the name of Jesus works the way it does in the New Testament whenever the apostles are going around performing miracles. It's because the name of Jesus to them is not some verbal formula. The name of Jesus to them is not a magic trick. 
operating and functioning in the name of Jesus means your entire life is covered with the life of Jesus. Let me give you an example of the first time I ever thought about something like this. I was probably, I, I probably got saved sometime when I was 8 or 10 years old, but I didn't get baptized until I was 11. I was baptized while my mom and stepdad were attending Bell's Chapel Free Will Baptist Church. And the pastor knew that I was saved, but he also knew I hadn't been baptized yet, and he wanted me to be baptized. But he also wanted me to understand what baptism meant. Now, they were Free Will Baptists, so they believed in, you know, believer's baptism. So in order to get me to a place where they were comfortable baptizing me, I had to articulate the plan of salvation to their satisfaction, and I also had to understand what it meant to be baptized on its basic level. For them, on its most basic level, baptism meant commitment. You had to be committed in order to be baptized. Now let me correct that line of thinking for just a minute. Baptism is about commitment. But it's, not, but it's not about your commitment to God because your commitment to God will always fail. Rather, baptism is about God's commitment to you. I'll say that again. Baptism is about God's commitment to you. So you had to be committed in order to be baptized and you had to stay committed after you were baptized which is why when they first talked to me about being baptized I didn't know if I was ready for it. I was afraid that I wouldn't take my baptism seriously enough. I was afraid I wouldn't take my relationship with God seriously enough. What I didn't know at the time, and that I wouldn't know until I became a Cumberland Presbyterian, was that God takes your baptism seriously enough for the both of you. My sweet and patient free will Baptist pastor had enough good theology to know that saying, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost wasn't some verbal formula that you say when you apply water to someone. It meant that after that moment, I was, in fact, in the name. I was in metaphysically inside the name, inside the character of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they didn't want me to take His name in vain. And so we see that the life of God is holy. We see that the name of God is holy. And finally, what makes the chasm so great is that the location of God is holy. Notice what, again what he says in Isaiah 57, 15. For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place. Back in Isaiah 6, 1, Isaiah said that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. Later in Isaiah 66, 1, God would speak through him and say, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. God lives in an altogether separate place apart from His creation. Now I'm not going to labor this point too much because I think we get the idea of God living in a high and holy place. But what we must understand is this. Because God lives in a high and holy place apart from His creation, there is a chasm between Him and His creation that, that only He can cross. And we know that God crosses that chasm because the entirety of verse 15 says, For the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. He says, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. See, if God lives in a high and holy place, how is it that He can also dwell with the lowly of spirit? It's because God can reach across the great chasm 
chasm and lift up those who will admit that they need to be lifted up. <clears throat> and that brings us to our next point, a great conundrum. You know what a conundrum is, right? It's a problem or a complication that arises. It's an obstacle to an end goal. And part of what causes this great conundrum in Isaiah 57 is that not everyone will admit that they need to be lifted up. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, 6 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt us in due time. Not everyone will humble themselves. Instead, people who are already low in their sin will allow their pride to take them even lower. Because notice what it says in Isaiah 57 verse 17. Because of his sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him. I was angry and hid, but he went on turning back to the desires of his heart. And then notice what it says just two chapters later in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, he says, Indeed, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save, and His ear is not too deaf to hear. But your iniquities are separating you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not listen. As we look at the whole of Scripture, the testimony of God's Word is clear that our sin creates a barrier between us and God. What's interesting is that in our reading this morning, we see that even though there is a great chasm, God is willing to close the gap. God is willing to remove every barrier between He and us. We know that, we know that because of what we just read at the end of Isaiah 57, 14, where He says, Remove every obstacle from My people's way. But the problem is that every time God takes down one brick of the barrier, every time God takes down one brick of the obstacle, we end up putting another brick in its place with our sin and rebellion. God is pursuing us, but we keep running away from Him. You remember the prophet Jonah. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. He said, I'm not going to go to Nineveh. I don't like them. They don't like me. I'm going to book a trip to Tarshish. So he starts off on his way to Tarshish. And he thinks he's escaped. He thinks he's gotten away from God's call in his life. And, me, and he may even think that he's gotten away from God himself. But you know the story. A storm comes along. All of the men on the ship pray to their respective gods. And then they get the idea to cast lots. And in their minds, whoever the lot fell on, that's who was to blame for this violent storm. The lot fell on Jonah. And they grabbed him by the nap of the neck and the seat of the britches and they just yeeted him overboard. And when they did, a giant fish swallowed him up and then three days later, he was thrown up on the shore of Nineveh where he should have gone in the first place. And so what we have is a great chasm and then we have a great conundrum because we widen the chasm with our sin, but there's good news because God is willing to reach across the chasm and provide a solution to the problem that we've created. God is always willing to provide a solution to the problem that we've created. And this is a great consolation. Now I want you, now I want you to follow along with me as I read verses 14 through 19 again in their entirety. He said, build it up, build it up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. 
For the high and exalted one who, who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and the lowly of spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. For I will not accuse you forever and I will not always be angry. For then the spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have made. Because of, the sin, because of his sinful greed, I was angry, so I struck him. I was angry and hid, and he went on turning back. Back to the desires of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. And so in this great consolation, there's three promises I want us to take hold of this morning. First of all, I want us to remember that God lives with the lowly of spirit. And we see that in verse 15 where he says, I, I, long to, I live with the, the oppressed and the lowly of spirit and to revive the heart of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. And so this reminds me of the Beatitudes in the New Testament. The Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. The first beatitude. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the first beatitude, this doesn't have anything to do with people who are financially destitute. It has to do with people who will admit that there's something inside them that is fundamentally broken and needs to be made whole. You see, in Jesus' day, and even in Isaiah's day, if you were well-to-do and you went to the temple every chance you got, then it was assumed that God blessed you materially for your faithfulness. However, if you admitted that you were broken, not just financially but spiritually, then there was no blessing for you. You had done something wrong. You were on God's naughty list. And we kind of see this a little bit after Job had lost everything. His three friends tried to comfort him by saying, Well, you know, Job, this, this all probably happened because you sinned and you refused to repent. <clears throat> Some friends they are, right? And so when, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, He's announcing that God has broken down the barrier between His kingdom and these people. God's kingdom is available to these people. And that's exactly what God is saying in Isaiah 57.15. God is saying that He dwells with the lowly of spirit. Not simply the marginalized, but those who have been marginalized in their own heart by their own personal rebellion against God. God dwells with those who admit that they need Him. God's kingdom is available to those that we may not think God's kingdom is available to. But only if they will admit their need for Him. You can be dirt poor and turn your nose up at God, but if you're dirt poor and you will admit that you need God to fix you, then you'll be richer than Elon Musk and Jeffrey Bezos combined. And I'm not talking about materially speaking either. So the second promise I want us to see here is that God will not accuse us forever. Verse 16. He said, I will not accuse you forever and I will not always be angry. For then the Spirit would grow weak before me, even the breath which I have made. So what does this mean? It means that God will not accuse us forever because then our spirit would grow weak. What does that mean practically for us? It means it is not God's will for us to be broken by His anger. It is, I'll say that again. It is not God's will for us to be broken by His anger. Because we're already broken by our sin. 
Isaiah 42 verse 3. God says a bruised reed, or God speaks through Isaiah and He said a bruised reed He will not break. Have you ever seen a reed that's been bruised? You know those cattails that grow up around ponds and other bodies of water? They kind of look like corn dogs growing in the wild. right? Don't eat them with mustard. When the reed on one of those little plants gets, bru- gets bruised, the cattail just kind of hangs there. And God says in Isaiah 42.3 that, br- that a bruised reed He will not break. And God says in Isaiah 42.3 that that bruised reed is you. You've been broken. You've been beat up. You've been abused. You've been left abandoned. And God looks at you and says, I refuse to break you. Jesus says something similar in John chapter 3 verse 17. He says, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now why is it that God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world? The world's already condemned. The world was condemned the moment Adam partook of the forbidden fruit. The minute Adam gave in to the desire of his wife Eve, It sent the entire world in chaos. We walked headlong into our own condemnation. And so Jesus says that God did not send me here to condemn you, but to save you. The third promise I want us to see here is that God desires peace for us. Look at verses 18 and 19. I have seen His ways, but I will heal Him. I will lead Him and restore comfort to Him and His mourners, creating words of praise. The Lord says, peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. As we stated earlier, our sin has created a barrier between us and God. But our God is a barrier-breaking God. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. While we were waging war against God in our sin, He was making peace through the blood of His Son. Now when we pair Romans 5.10 with Isaiah 57.19, what we get is this picture of a loving God who doesn't repay evil for evil. Instead, He responds to our rebellion with kindness. And according to Romans 2.4, it's this kind of kindness that leads us to repentance. It's also interesting that at the end of verse 19, God says, Peace, peace to the one who is far or near, and I will heal him. Now why is that significant? It's significant because that's the same language used in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 verse 39. When Peter gets done preaching the first sermon at Pentecost, he doesn't give an altar call and get people to sign cards. He almost leaves them hanging in a way, and they have to ask him, well, brother, what do we do to be saved? He says in Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then right after that, Peter uses the same language of near or far. He says, For this promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So what Peter is saying, and effectively what Isaiah 57, 18-19 is saying, is that in spite of who you are, in spite of what you've done, in spite of where you've come from, God is willing to create peace for you.
But there's a great consequence for people who reject that peace. According to what we read at the end of our text in verses 20-21, this is what the text says, But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its water churns up mire and muck. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. So we just heard where God is willing to create peace and where God lives with the lowly of spirit and He desires to heal the heart of the oppressed. So how is it? How is it that then He can say that there's no peace for the wicked? It's because there's two categories of people in the world. And everyone in the world fits into one of these two categories and it's, it's interesting because you know, we have a culture now who says, oh, don't label me, don't, don't put me in a box, things like that. No, you're already labeled. Sorry. God can change the label, but for now you're already labeled. Everyone in the world fits into one of these two categories. There's people who are lowly of spirit, and then there's people who are just plain lowly. The lowly of spirit are the ones that admit they're broken and they need help. They're the ones who admit that the label needs to be changed, right? The just plain lowly are those who will not admit that they need help. The lowly of spirit are the ones who admit that they're broken and they need help. The just plain lowly are those who may not seem lowly on the outside, but on the inside they're hurting and they know it, and they refuse to turn to the only place where they can find healing. The reason God can say that there's no peace for the wicked is because the wicked reject any and every offer of peace that comes their way. They want peace on their own terms. And when it comes to God, you can either have peace on His terms or you can continue in turmoil. There is no in-between. And so what category are we in this morning? Are we the lowly of spirit or are we just the plain lowly? Do you want peace this morning? Then lay down your weapons and come to the cross. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is Your Word and we are Your people. I pray, God, that you have somehow, some way worked through my stumbling, that you have somehow, some way worked through what's been said this morning. Your word never goes forth void, and so, Father, I trust in the power of your word this morning. Now, Lord, I trust that everyone here is saved, and so, Father, with that trust, I pray that you would keep us. I pray, Father, that You would cause our hearts to continually turn to You. That You would remind us that turning to You is not a one-time act, but, Father, it is a lifelong process. It is a lifelong journey. Lord, let us continually look to You. I pray that You would send Your precious Holy Spirit to apply this Word to our hearts. We ask it all in Your Son's name. Amen. For joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.